Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is the portion of God's Word that the Holy Spirit has ordained for us on this Lord's Day. Romans chapter 8. We've been in this chapter for some time. Last Sunday morning, we entered into the section of this chapter where believers are taught that they must never appeal to their sufferings as evidence that they are separated from the love of Christ. Your sufferings are no evidence that you are separated from the love of Christ. Our tendency when faced with trouble is to question God. We question his love. We question his care. We question his fairness. We question his ability. We question his wisdom. We may even question our standing with him. We may question whether we are children of God. We may think to ourselves, if I am a son, then why this? So the Holy Spirit has given us a passage here in the second portion of Romans 8 that is calculated to teach us to think properly, to correctly interpret our sufferings. Verse 18 there, where we were last week, begins with the word or the phrase about reckoning. For I reckon. We're to reckon certain things to be true. We're called upon to think accurately in the midst of our sufferings and troubles. You know how difficult that is to do in the midst of the trouble. Which is why you and I have to fortify our minds now on this side of the trouble so that we think like this almost instinctively so that the Holy Spirit can use passages like this that we have been taught to give us a ballast at the bottom of our boat that we don't capsize in the midst of the storm. There were three basic ideas in Paul's introductory thoughts that we saw last week from the end of verse 17 and all of verse 18. We saw, first of all, that suffering is to be expected. shouldn't take us by surprise. We are united to Christ, and the servant is not greater than his Lord. If Christ was called upon to suffer, then we will be called upon to suffer as well. And all of our sufferings are with Christ. They are in him. We suffer with him. That last, uh, second to last phrase of verse 7 says, we suffer with him. The second idea is that suffering is the necessary preparation for our glorification. We suffer with him that in order that we might be also glorified together. 
This light momentary affliction worketh for us a far more eternal weight of glory. Job was confident, wasn't he? That God knows the way that I take. And when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. Suffering is the necessary preparation for glory. We suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. And then the third thought from verse 18 is that suffering really is nothing when you compare it to the glory that shall be revealed in us. We're talking about something temporary. We're measuring it against something without end. What is even 95 years of trouble compared with being glorified forever in the presence of Jesus Christ with the everlasting likeness to Jesus Christ, incapable of sinning or even being able to be tempted to sin to all eternity. Our sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, you're not supposed to consider your sufferings apart from glory. You're to factor glory into the equation. And when you do, you understand that these sufferings are expected, necessary, and light. Reckon on those things being true. Now this morning we come to the paragraph that begins at verse 19. And this is probably the most obscure section of this otherwise well-known and very much beloved chapter of the New Testament. But this paragraph begins at verse 19 and goes down through verse 25, is a profound, glorious truth. It is calculated to take your mind off of your present troubles and to fix your gaze on the eternal weight of glory that is on the horizon for every believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 begins with the word for, because. So it's the explanation of the Holy Spirit's assertion in verse 18. Last week, we only spent a few moments on the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we only scratched the surface of what that eternal weight of glory looks like. Now we're supposed to calculate this into the equation. As you do the math and you compare or contrast your sufferings in this present time with the glory which shall be revealed in you. Okay, factor this into the equation. Beginning at verse 19, let's read. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. 
because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now that requires some explanation, doesn't it? But I think that if you will give some patience to this and apply your best spiritual attention to this, that at the end we will have something glorious here. And this is actually more or less the only passage of Scripture that talks this way about this aspect of the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is going to help us reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. My theme this morning is creation groaning toward glory. Creation groaning toward glory. And I hope the appropriateness of that theme will just become clear as we work our way down through the passage, verse by verse. All right, so here's the first question we have when we come to verses 19 through 23. The first question is, who or what is this creature? Verse 19 mentions the creature. Verse 20 mentions the creature. Verse 21 mentions the creature. Who or what is this creature? Well, first let me point out to you that the same word is also used in verse 22. It's used four verses in a row. But in verse 22, that same exact Greek word is translated differently. In verse 22, the word creature is translated creation. And that would be a more clear translation of the word all the way down through. We're talking about the creation. But what exactly does God, what does Paul mean by the creation? What's he talking about here? Well, let's, just, let's just figure out the facts. What are the facts of the case? What does he say about creation in these verses? In verse 19, he says creation is waiting for something. It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. In verse 20, Paul says creation is right now subjected to vanity, but not willingly. Somebody else subjected creation to vanity. Verse 22 tells us creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. There's this glorious hope for creation. Verse 22 tells us that right now, the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain. All right, so what does he mean by the creation? Let's do some process of elimination. Are we talking about angels? Angels are part of creation. So would angels be included in what Paul's talking about? Well, are angels, verse 22, 
groaning and travailing in pain right now? No. And will fallen angels be delivered from the bondage of corruption? Verse 21. No. Okay, so we're, not, we're talking about creation minus angels. All right, is he talking about unbelieving humanity? Because unbelieving humanity, that would be part of creation too, wouldn't it? Belie- unbelievers. Well, does unbelieving humanity wait with an earnest expectation for the manifestation of the sons of God? No. All right, so we're talking about creation minus angels and minus unbelieving humanity. All right, third question. Are we talking about believers? Because believers are part of creation. I mean, you, you and I are part of creation, so he's talking about believers. Well, look at verse 23, where he says, not only they, but ourselves also. And so everything he said up to verse 23 didn't include believers. He's deliberately saying that he's talking about something else other than believers, but we are similar. That's what he says in verse 23. So he's distinguishing between creation and believers. So again, we're not talking about, we're talking about creation minus angels and minus humans. All right, so what are we left with? Creation minus angels and minus human beings. What are we left with? Well, basically we're left with what we would call irrational creation or natural creation or nature or the created order the world, the earth, the universe, the physicalness of the universe. We're talking about the created world. We're talking about nature. That's what he means by creation. He's talking about nature. When Paul writes of creation, therefore, waiting with earnest expectation, of creation not being willing, of creation groaning, He's obviously using a figure of speech. It's a very common figure of speech. It's called personification, where you are giving an impersonal thing personal qualities. It's a very legitimate form of communication. And is this the only passage of Scripture which personifies creation, which gives personal qualities to the created order, to nature? Well, on the front of your worship guide this morning is Psalm 96, 11 through 13. And Psalm 96, 11 through 13 is one of those passages which personifies creation. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the world field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. You see, there's a, there's a time when creation is personified. At the end of Isaiah 55, we read, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So here we have a passage that is right in line with passages like that. Natural creation is being pictured as currently groaning, but full of hope and expectation that it's going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And there will be joy in the world when the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. 
Fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains will repeat the sounding joy. And heaven and nature will sing. That's that's Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 96. So the passage is about the created order. It's about creation, the natural world. Okay, now we're in a position to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, right through the passage, beginning in verse 19. Verse 19 tells us that natural creation is waiting with earnest expectation. It's colorful language. Earnest expectation. It's a compound Greek word that combines the word for your head along with the word for watching or stretching. It it pictures someone with their head uplifted and outstretched. Picture someone craning their neck to see something eagerly. Then you have the word wait or waiteth there in verse 19. And that is also a vivid word. It it refers to eagerly, expectantly waiting. The, The idea of being on the edge of your seat, waiting with bated breath. That's the idea. It's very vivid language. Creation is on the edge of its seat. It's craning its neck in order to have the first glance. First glance at what? What does verse 19 say? First glance at what? At the manifestation of the sons of God. Now here's a key to help your understanding. The word manifestation there is the same word revealed back in verse 18. So he's talking about the same thing. The manifestation of the sons of God is the revelation of the glory that is in us. Right now, the sons of God are veiled. I mean, dealing with infirmities, dealing with sinful flesh, encumbered by limitations and by troubles, who I really am is veiled to a degree. John said, did he not, beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And what he, what he means by that is not, we don't really know what the glorified body is going to be like, but we do. That's not what he means. What he means is right now, it doesn't look like what we really are. We are the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear. What we shall be does not yet appear. That's what he means. So, so there's this day coming. When the sons of God are going to be manifested. They're going to be openly revealed. There will be this glory revealed in them. And when we talked about that last week, what is it? It's perfect likeness to Jesus Christ. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. The manifestation of the sons of God. But the surprising thing in verse 19 is that who is eagerly waiting it? Nature. Why would nature be on the edge of its seat waiting for the glory that will be revealed in the sons of God? Well, the short answer is it's because the fate 
of creation has always been bound up with the fate of man. The fate of man and the fate of the cosmos are, inex- are inextricably linked. They're just, they're just together. One follows the other. It's because of mankind that creation is in its current state. And it's going to continue in that state until reconciled man receives his full inheritance from his father God. The fate of creation is inextricably linked to the fate of man. So you see what verse 20 says. Man's sin produced the present condition of creation. The creation was made subject. That's a one-time past action. It was subjected to vanity. Vanity, emptiness, futility not fulfilling its function, not fulfilling the original intention that God had for it. It doesn't really measure up to what it was meant to be. That's its current condition. Verse 21 uses another phrase for the current condition of creation. You see it there? The bondage of corruption, decay, death, everything breaking down, leading to death and to destruction. And creation is in bondage to this cycle. It can't break free. It's like every springtime it tries, and every autumn it fails again. Bondage to corruption. Death, decay, rendering creation ultimately vain and futile and not measuring up to its full designed potential. The hymn writer says, change and decay all around I see. Okay, what's the cause of this? Why is creation subjected to futility and in a bondage to decay and corruption? Well, the apostle says in verse 20 that creation was subjected to this. A one-time act in the past. There was a time when creation was not in the bondage of corruption. It was not subjected to vanity. But ever since a certain act, one time in the past, it has been vain. And it has been in bondage to decay and death. And what was the one past act when, when creation was subjected to its present condition. It was man's fall. Genesis 3. God says to Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till I return to the ground. That's why creation is as it is. And creation didn't do this to itself. That's what verse 20 says. It was not willingly. It was Adam's sin that did this to creation. It was God's curse that subjected creation and made it a slave to corruption. The earth was cursed because of Adam's sin. That's why the flowers that your husband bought you for Valentine's Day are no longer blooming. 
That's why you're in a constant struggle against the weeds in your garden. That's why the theory of evolution is so untenable. Because scripture teaches, and it is self-evident, that creation is not gradually improving. It is gradually disintegrating. Bondage to corruption. Subjected to futility. And this is why the present time is so characterized by suffering. Creation was cursed when Adam sinned. Now he's, he's explaining the point of why creation is on the edge of its seat. It's because creation, the fate of creation is tied to the fate of man. You see that in the present condition. It got this way because of man's sin. But then you come to verse 21. And you see that creation knows when its deliverance is going to come. When God cursed the ground, he did so, last two words of verse 20, in hope. God gave a promise to creation at the very moment that he cursed it. He said, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That's the hope. And creation's fate is tied to that. Man sins, creation is cursed. Man's redeemed, and creation's delivered from that curse. So the hope is stated in verse 21. Creation itself, even creation, even the natural order, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation partook of man's curse, and creation will partake of man's redemption. When the sons of God are gloriously liberated, when the glory is revealed in them, when there is the manifestation of the sons of God, creation itself is going to participate in that renewal. Creation itself will be delivered from the curse. And that renewed creation, the scripture calls it the new heavens and the new earth. There are four passages of scripture which use that phrase, the new heavens and the new earth. In Isaiah 65 and in Revelation 21, we are told there is no sorrow in the new heavens and new earth. God shall wipe every tear from their eye. In Isaiah 66, Isaiah tells us the character of the new heavens and new earth will be that it remains. No more vanity, no more corruption, no more temporary subjected status. The new creation is permanent. It remains. And then the best cross-reference to this is in our New Testaments and 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn over there. 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's the fourth reference to the new heavens and new earth. Twice in Isaiah, once in Revelation, and then here in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, 
where we read, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. There is coming a great change in the current creation. There will be this fire, this melting, this fervent heat, this dissolution language. We don't know if he's talking about out with the old and with the new entirely, or whether he's talking about a purification process that renews. There's, there's people on both sides of that question. But the bottom line is, The new heavens and new earth are not like the present order of things. It is a new, a renewed creation order. And the character of the new heavens and new earth, Peter tells us, is that therein dwelleth righteousness. Think about that. What is the whole character of the world right now? and the whole character of human history. Unrighteousness. If there are newspapers in the new heavens and new earth, what will all the articles be about? Can you imagine opening a newspaper in a world where therein dwelleth Righteousness. God's creation will have no unrighteousness in it. The first creation, the present order of things, it's marked with the curse and with sin and with death and with sorrow, with sadness and grief and pain and rebellion and murder and war and violence and greed and envy and poverty and oppression. It's marring the present creation. But the glory of the new creation is this, that the old will be no more. It will be a thing of the past. All of the heartache and all the oppression and all that at times makes this life unbearable, all the sufferings of this present time, there's coming a day for those that are in Christ where the old will no longer be remembered. Creation itself is going to share in the glorious liberty of the children of God. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's the hope that creation has. That's why it's on the edge of its seat for the glorious liberty of the children of God. And then back in Romans 8, The next verse gives us a tremendous, striking illustration of this. Verse 22. It's like this. It's like the whole creation right now is groaning and travailing in pain together. And those words, groaning and travailing in pain, 
are words connected with childbirth. They refer to birth pangs. What an appropriate illustration. The sufferings of this present time are like the pains of childbirth. The sufferings are real. They are intense. They make you cry. No one looks forward to them. In fact, they are dreaded. They are not joyous, they are grievous. But they are expected. And they are temporary. And they are necessary. And they are not worthy to be compared with the baby that you hold in your arms when it's all done. What an appropriate illustration. Just like that, creation is groaning toward glory. And so are you. That's what verse 23 says, and so are you. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. There's a lot to say about 23, and we're going to save it for next time we're together in Romans 8. But you think about this passage. We have, it, we have it all in our heads now. We have it, we have it right before us now. So let's not lose this moment. We have, the, we have the passage now set before us. We've gone through every phrase, just right in the sequence that the Holy Spirit inspired it. The natural world was created good by God, but its fate was bound up with the fate of man. So when man sinned, creation was cursed. But creation will be renewed at the consummation of man's redemption when the sons of God have God's glory revealed in them and they come into the actual possession in the fullest sense of their inheritance. That's when creation gets renewed too. And that's why creation is eagerly waiting like an expectant mother. Creation is groaning and travailing in pain. And the great cosmic renewal that is going to take place at the consummation of all things when the new heavens and the new earth are inaugurated, it is going to be so glorious that it's going to far outweigh the sufferings of this present time. And all of that about creation is true of you and me too. Only for us, we were subjected willingly. We actually did sin against the Lord, and we deserved the curse. We marred ourselves by our own sin. But God's grace has proven to be greater than our sin. And he gave us his Holy Spirit as the earnest, as the down payment, the first fruits of our eventual inheritance. And one of these days, there is going to be glory revealed in us. One of these days, we will receive the redemption of our bodies. 
One of these days we will come into our full inheritance, sinless perfection in an uncursed creation. So I think this would be Paul's application from all of that. Right now you are so fatigued and you are frustrated and you are defeated emotionally, physically, mentally. And you wonder if anyone else feels this way. We all feel this way. Even creation feels this way. All of creation shares in this with us. It's part of living in a fallen world and a decaying body. We all feel this way. Everybody who's ever been saved and has the love of God shed abroad in their hearts, they've experienced the same thing. But your salvation includes an eventual individual redemption from all of the effects of the fall. So don't give up. Don't say to yourself that I am some kind of exception and my lot has been particularly difficult, so I'm bailing out. No, no, no. Don't bail out. We're all in this together. And how can any of God's people give up? The only people in the world that actually have an explanation for how things are. The only people in the world who have been given hope and expectancy of a glorious future that far outweighs present suffering. Of all people, how could God's people give up and bail out and throw in the towel? That would be inexcusable. And that really is the point of the passage, I think. We're waiting. All of creation is waiting. We're all groaning. So endure these things and go forward with confident expectation because you have God on your side. And you know that all these things are working together for your good and God's glory. And Christ is working to reconcile all things unto himself. And in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God will gather together in one all things in Christ. Whether they are in heaven or on earth, they're going to be gathered together even in him. So you can't give up. With that expectation in front of you, you can't give up. It, it, would, it would not be right to do so. So go forward with the love of God in your heart, with a, with a purpose of serving God and wringing out of this frustrating life something that has eternal value to it. You're the one person in all the world that's capable of that. But when you go to work, it can have eternal consequence to it that is not vain and futile because you're living to the glory of God with the expectation of a glory that will be revealed in you. What you do, you can do by faith for the glory of God. And that ought to be a marvelous consideration 
that propels the people of God forward in their sufferings unto ultimate glorification in Jesus Christ. Remember that hymn, This is My Father's World. Remember the last verse? This is my Father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seem oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and heaven and earth be one. Creation is groaning toward glory. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, we praise Thee for this glorious hope that You have given to us in Christ. We pray that we would live in light of these things that have so stirred us today. That these matters would go from our heads to our hearts and out to our hands. And that we would live more consistently as people who seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and fortify us against the accusations and temptations of the devil. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.